0: We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. Let's pray and let's just invite the Lord to speak to us this morning. Father, you are so worthy of our worship. And even little kids who are still figuring out who you are and what you do, that they would lift you up. Father, what a beautiful thing. And we pray for them. We pray your blessing on them, that they would grow up to know you and love you and follow you faithfully. Father, as they grow up and they begin to lead us, we pray that their heart would be after your own heart. And we pray, Father, that you would receive all the glory. We really want you to speak to us now. We really, really want to hear from you, Father. So would you speak through your word? And would you just give us a deep insight into your heart and into our future, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Hey, why don't you open up to Isaiah 9, if you've got a Bible on you, um, or you can use one of the Bibles in the the front there, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, This week when I was studying, I came across uh, quite a few uh, royal names from history, because this passage we're going to be going through is about the names of of Jesus, and I came across some other royal names of history. Some of them are like pretty regal and serious, and others are pretty funny. I'll share some with you. Uh, You've got people like Alexander the Great, right? His last name wasn't the Great. It was a royal title, a throne title that they gave him after his death. And the reason they called him great was because he ruled from like when he was 20 years old until he was 32, only 12 years, died very young, but he conquered a huge area. Now, I I don't know that I would call that great, conquering other lands, but he did some pretty amazing and big things. So they call Alexander the Great. You've got Ivan the Terrible, this is a real person, he, he was a, a czar in Russia, and uh, he had so much paranoia that he would have people just randomly killed, like even his own family members. He would have this panera, para, para, panera? <laughs> they didn't have panera, back. paranoia, and he would just have them killed. And he was also just very ferocious on the, the battlefield, very formidable, so Ivan the Terrible. But there's some other ones too. Uh, there's this guy named Charles the Silly, I'm I'm not joking, look it up, check me on this. Charles the Silly, he was Charles VI of France, of course, from France. Uh, He had some bouts of hallucinations and he believed that um, other people and he himself were made out of glass and and could shatter at any time. And and so he would even have metal bars sewn into his clothes to protect himself from breaking and shattering into pieces at any time. That was Charles the Silly. Uh, If you've ever watched Braveheart, Uh, you've heard of Edward Longshanks. Uh, Longshanks means long legs. He was very tall, apparently, had very long legs. Uh, This is Edward I of England. He got his nickname because he was just really tall. Uh, He was also called Edward Hammer of the Scots uh, for obvious reasons if you've ever watched Braveheart because he was awful to the people of Scotland. But uh, Edward Longshanks, that's another one. Do you have Ivalo the Cabbage? You have, uh, <laughs> this is probably my favorite, Alfonso the slobberer. <laughs> I'm telling you, look them up, these are not made up. And then uh, <clears throat> the most infamous may be John the baby maker. <laughs> I'll let you figure that one out. He had lots of presents to buy at Christmas. Um, so these names often describe uh, what people accomplished, what these kings would accomplish, or maybe something about their character, what they were like, something unique about them and uh, saying, here's, here's the way this person ruled. These names give us some kind of indication of like what they were like or how they ruled. Um, but most kings uh, that we've heard of that have these kinds of names, they're given these royal names as a response to who they are and what they had done as a response, like after they're done reigning and oftentimes after they've died, they receive these names as a response to what they've done and what they've been like. But the child that we're gonna read about here in Isaiah 9 is given names, not as a response, but before he was ever born, he's given these names as a promise, a promise of who he'd be and what he'd be like. And this promise is the absolute anchor for our hope. Who Jesus is, the character that he would possess and does possess and will possess forever. It is the absolute anchor for our hope. Now, a little background leading up to Isaiah nine. In Isaiah chapter eight, there's this terrible fate prophesied for Israel because of their idolatry, idolatry, their evil, their rebellion against God. Israel had chosen the way of the nations to go after the the false gods, the idols, and the, the sin of the other nations. And they had chosen the way of the nations over God. And so God gave them the nations. He said, if you want the nations, you can have them. We'll let Assyria come in to Israel and let you teach them what it is like to be under the thumb of other nations rather than under the just and merciful rule of God. And it was this terrible fate that Assyria would come in and cause immeasurable pain and hopelessness. So we read about that in Isaiah 8. But last week when when Kyle preached, you see this turning of a corner that God gives some other promises, not just the consequences of their sin, but a saving from what they had done. In verses one through three of Isaiah 9, we also saw that for people who are lost and in darkness and in anguish because of their alienation from God, God himself will come in to the situation and offer light and liberation. So that's where we're left off now today when we pick up in verse four. And so our response as followers of Jesus from what Kyle was preaching last week is neither pessimism nor optimism that the glass is half full or half empty. That's one way to look at life. Sometimes the glass is half full. Sometimes the glass is half empty. That's not what it's about. It's not about pessimism or optimism. It is about hope. It is about what we put our hope in, it is true hope, living hope that endures because of who we put it in. The biblical profile of disciples of Jesus is not pessimism or optimism, or some people say, well, I'm just a realist. Yeah, you're just a pessimist trying to put another name on yourself. The, 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 the way that the disciples of Jesus react and live is in hope, that through the good and the bad, which will come, and I'm sure all of you have experienced both good and bad in your lives, there is something more. And we see good and bad, not just in our lives. This isn't just about us, but about what's happening in the world. We see good and we see bad. We see it mixed all together. And sometimes we see more bad than we see good. In fact, oftentimes we see more bad than we see good. But it's not about that, that through all of that, there's something more, something more substantial than wishful thinking, something eternal. There is a bedrock reality that because of, Who God is, our future is not only sure, it is glorious. How many of us walk around in our daily life, seeing the stuff we see in the news, seeing the things happening around our culture, and we say, you know, our future is just glorious. Sometimes it's hard to have that perspective. But we have to stop being so short-sighted that what we see happening now isn't the way it will always be. Despite the gloom and rebellion and invasion that we see in Isaiah 8, God gives a promise to his people and honestly, all people in the world. And this promise is this, that light and joy will now be Israel's future. Something's going to change. Something's going to happen. And Israel's future will have light and joy in it. And now as we pick up in verse four, Isaiah begins to show us why and how this offer of hope and the future to the people of the earth will actually be accomplished. So why will there be now light and joy instead of doom and gloom for Israel? Why? The first reason is this, all tyranny will be eradicated. All tyranny, all oppression shall cease. Read verse four. Isaiah 9, 4. For the yoke of his burden, who? Israel's. And the staff for Israel's shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you God have broken as on the day of Midian. There's a lot here and I wanna break it down a little bit. Talks about a yoke and a staff and a rod. These are all images of slavery and oppression. A yoke is how you cause an animal to bear a burden. A yoke is what you put on an animal's neck to control that animal. And staffs and rods were used to beat slaves into submission and to beat people who had been conquered into submission. He uses all these pictures Isaiah does. He talks about yokes and staffs and rods. And he says, these things will be shattered and broken. These tools of oppression, these tools of tyranny will be absolutely crushed and broken. And this verse hyperlinks to two events in Israel's history. The first one was back to Egypt. When the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, there's a lot of talk in, in the, the Pentateuch where we see that, especially in Exodus and in Leviticus, we see this, this nomenclature of of yokes of and burdens. And we see rods and staff as this picture of Egypt having having uh, complete control over Israel and how God brought them out from under that. So this verse hyperlinks back to that, but it also talks about as in the day of Midian, what does that mean? Well, if you look back at the old Testament in judges six through eight, we see the story of Israel's liberation from underneath the Midianites a foreign people. And he uses this man, Gideon, to defeat the Midianites who were oppressing them horribly. He comes to Gideon and Gideon is, is, is threshing wheat, not out in the field, but kind of in a wine press. It's got walls on it. So the Midianites can't see him and come and steal his stuff or hurt him. He's afraid. So he's in this, this closed off location and he's threshing his wheat. And this angel comes to him and says, I'm going to use you. God's going to use you to free the Israelites from Midian. And Gideon's response is like, I think you've got this wrong. Reminds me a lot of Moses. You know, Moses said, don't use me, I can't speak. And and Gideon says, no, wait a second, I I, I can't do this because I'm like of the least tribe of Israel and the least clan of that tribe. And in my own family, I'm like the least. I'm not the person you're looking for. And God's kind of like, I'm gonna use you anyway. And that way, no one's gonna think it was anyone but me that did this. So God utterly saved Israel in spite of, of the weakness of the people. And despite the weakness of Gideon, he even took Gideon's army, which was thousands and he, and he honed it down to 300. And then just, they did a couple things that God told them to do. And the Midianites just went into complete chaos and defeated themselves. This is the hand of God reaching in and not by the people's power, but by his own freeing them. Jesus himself alludes to him fulfilling this verse in Matthew eleven thirty. Remember when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is hyperlinking back to Isaiah nine and saying all those yokes and rods, burdens of the oppressors who've always ruled over you. Those kings were horrible to you, but I as your king, will have a light yoke, an easy burden. I will, not, I will not rule over you in the same way they did. My rule is not like those you have known, oppression and violence. I will lead you with grace and mercy, love and justice. So even Jesus claims this as speaking of himself. So that's reason number one that all tyranny will be eradicated. What's another reason there will be light and hope for Israel? He says in verse five, that all war and violence will be ended. Can you imagine a world where there wasn't one single war happening? You can't imagine that <laughs> because you've never seen it. I mean, you can imagine it, but what would that be like? Every time on this earth that that a war starts Winding down, and those people maybe come to peace or at least ceasefire. What happens on the other side of the globe? Another war pops right back up. And then, in that same place where we saw peace happen, what happens later on? Another war. War and violence and oppression. This is part and parcel to this world as it is right now. But here's what Isaiah. says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is gonna be victory won by peace, not by bloodshed. The effect of God's intervention is that battle gear is no longer needed. You don't need to save your battle shoes that you used the last time that you killed a bunch of other people or went to war. You don't need to save those shoes anymore. You don't need to save that soldier uniform that you wore when you were protecting your country from foreign invaders. You don't need to keep those things anymore. Even the most basic of military hardware, shoes and tunics, shoes and garments are now utterly useless because of this child that we're gonna read about who will bring eternal peace a scholarly commentator John Oswald writes in his commentary on Isaiah he says how will the Lord put an end to oppression by putting an end to the warfare upon which it oppression rests God will not supplant oppression with greater oppression nor will he replace warfare with warfare instead he will do away with wars but how If you can just for a second separate your thoughts from the familiarity you have with this passage where it starts talking about a child is born, a son is given, wonderful counselor. If you could just separate yourself from having heard that your whole life for a second, just just for a moment, pretend you don't know that that's coming. And someone came to you and said, okay, so God is promising that he's gonna put an end to all tyranny and he's gonna put an end to all wars. And and it's your decision how that gets done. You need to make the plan for how all tyranny in the world is, is gotten rid of and how all wars will cease. What's your plan? What would your answer be? It, it, yeah, that's, yeah, you read the Bible too much, Mike. No, <laughs> keep reading the Bible, please. In my flesh, not thinking about what scripture says, I don't know that that would be my answer, Jesus. Because the way that this world constantly answers that question is, well, if there's a tyrant, what do you do? More violence to overcome that tyrant. And then when that person becomes a tyrant, more tyrants, violence to overcome that tyrant. And it's just this game of one-offsmanship. That's how we solve problems here. But that's not how Isaiah answers this question of how. He says God's gonna end all tyranny, oppression, and violence, but he doesn't answer in the same way that maybe our plan would be. Here's what he says in verse six. For, so, this is how this is gonna happen. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace. So how will God accomplish light, joy, freedom, and peace? By the birth of a child. It says it right here. He says, all these things are going to cease. All this evil will go away. And he says, how? A child is born. A son is given. Here's what we see from this verse. This person he's talking about will be human. He's called a child. He's born. This is a person who will be born naturally of a woman. This is a real human child. But not only will, be he, will he be a, a human child, he will be royal. He's a king's son. In the line of David, we'll see in verse seven next week, that this child that is born will come from the royal line of King David. So he will be both human, but he will also be royal. He's a king's son. Another commentator, J.A. Motyer, says this, he is born as from human parentage and given as from God. He's both given to us through birth from a woman, but also given to us from God as the kingly son who will reign. So in this section of scripture, God reveals his plans through the giving of names. It's a really interesting rhetorical device. In chapter seven, he says this, a virgin will give birth. And what's the name of that child? His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there's hope. But then in chapter eight, the hope dwindles a little bit, at least, from what it says. It says, Israel will receive the consequences of their rebellion. And so God tells Isaiah, you're about to have a son. When you have that son, here's what you're to name him. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, if any of you are looking for biblical names to name your baby, don't choose this one because what it means is quickly spoil, quickly plunder. God says to Isaiah, name your baby Quickly spoil, quickly plunder, because just like that person's name doesn't go away, so will this prophecy not go away. Assyria will invade, you will suffer consequences and they will quickly plunder you and quickly spoil Israel. In 1 Kings 17, we see the historical account of this invasion. And all through the book of 1 Kings, we see this principle at work, that as the king goes, so goes the people. All through the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and also some in 1 and 2 Samuel, you see this, this pattern of a king being born in the line of David or in another line under Israel when they split off and had civil war. And you see them being born, and the vast majority of them, it says, and they did not walk in the ways of their God and neither did the people of Israel. We see that as the king went in Israel, so went the people of Israel. But in Isaiah nine, there's another child's name given. And the child's name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Hope is not lost because we have Isaiah chapter nine. There's gonna be a new king. And once again, as this new king goes, so will his people. Same rules apply, but this king is different than all the other kings. So in Isaiah eight, we see a rebellious Israel led by rebellious kings being led into gloom and anguish. But in Isaiah nine, we see the promise of a faithful king who will lead Israel and the other nations, the world Gentiles into a glorious Future. He is able to do this because of who he is and what he's like. So, I want to walk through the names that give us these promises of who Jesus would be the names of our King. The first one is Wonderful Counselor. This literally means wonder counselor. The idea that there is a supernatural quality to his wisdom and his leading. This is not mere cleverness or intelligence. There's a lot of clever, smart people in this world. This is not on the same bar. He is supernaturally equipped to discern and act wisely, perfectly. And when you see that word counselor, don't think like therapist. Now, now God is our counselor in that way in so many ways. And we see that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit really steps into that place of counseling us and leading us and leading our heart and and, and healing us. But when we see wonderful counselor here, it's not meaning therapists. It's not saying like counselor, like you go and sit down and have a talk, rather counsel in the way of wise counsel. Kings of old and even today would have counselors all around. Even our president has a cabinet what he calls cabinet, advisors. And the point is, pick a bunch of wise advisors, counselors around you to help you lead. But this will be a miracle counselor, a wonder counselor, an advisor who doesn't need anyone else's advice because he will have complete wisdom and act completely wisely. The second name we see for him is Mighty God. Mighty God. His power and his might will be that of God's because he is God. It doesn't say that he's mighty because of God. It doesn't say might from God. It calls his name Mighty God. This child who is to be born is divine. He's not like other children. When has a baby ever been mighty? I've had a few babies in my life. Seen them all born. And the last thing I'd call them is mighty. Cute, beautiful, yeah. Stinky, yes. Wake me up all night, yes. But I wouldn't call him mighty. This child is called mighty. When has any other child in scripture been given the title of God? Let me answer it for you. None except for this one. This child will be divine. He will be God. The third name given, everlasting father. Isn't that interesting? A baby being born and he's got the name of father. A son being called father. He will lead his family with strength and care forever. This son that is born will nurture the family that his father gives him as his father would This reminds me so much of John chapter 14, where Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, just says to Jesus, just show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus says, Philip, how long have you been with me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is not claiming that he and the Father are indistinct. No, our theology, what we believe about the Trinity God's existence is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Individual persons who all make up one God. They share the nature of God, but they each are distinct from each other. So this is not saying that the Son is the exact same person as the Father. It's saying that He is in lockstep with the Father, and He will be a Father of sorts to us by His leadership and kingship over our life. Jesus and God the father are distinct in person, but lockstep in heart and motive and desire and holiness. It says he's everlasting father. This is also different from every other child or king who's ever been, because this child will be eternal. His leading and shepherding of his family does not come and go like the lifespan of a typical earthly father. His gracious, wise, nurturing care over his people never ends. This father doesn't leave you. This everlasting father doesn't go away. And somehow this everlasting father will will supernaturally live forever. There are people in this world who have tried to lead forever. There are people in this world who have tried to be the king over their nation and have succeeded for as long as they live. But there's this really annoying thing that gets in their way from leading forever and it's called mortality. They die. So even if a person ruled their entire life, there's an end game to that. Their death. This king, this king already died and raised and beat death there is no end game to his royal fatherly rule over us. He's everlasting. And the last thing it calls him is Prince of Peace. He is royalty who, whose reign results in peace. How many world leaders have we seen whose rule results in ultimate peace? Mm-mm. You see, Prince is a royal word. It's a royal title is royalty it also shows a family relation to a king he's the son of a king that's what a prince is the son of a king so this child that is to be born is royal because he is the son of royalty this will be god's son sitting on david's throne his royal great-grandfather he's double king because he's related to david king david and also because he's the son of god he is the king of kings And the outcome of his royal rule will be what the Bible calls shalom, peace between God and man and peace between all people. All that has been set up to this point, I think coalesces into this name, Prince of Peace, Prince of Shalom. This supernaturally wise, mighty, divine, loving, fatherly King will bring everlasting shalom, eternal peace and wellness to all of his people. So these are the child's throne names, his royal titles. But what is the name we call him by? I don't think probably anyone in the room is is at a mystery or a question mark of who this is talking about, but just so that we can connect the dots in scripture and make sure we know from scripture that who this is speaking of. Let's do that right now. 700 years later, the apostle Matthew answered the question of who this this prophecy is about. And he does it by drawing upon this very prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah's chapter 7 and 9 specifically. Matthew 121 through 23 says this, She, the virgin, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua. That means Yahweh saved. God saves for he will save his people from their sins all this took place Matthew says to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet which prophet? Isaiah specifically Isaiah 7 verse 14 where Isaiah says behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us so Matthew in reading the Old Testament, specifically the book of Isaiah, Matthew sees all of what Isaiah wrote about Emmanuel and this child who would be born and be given, wonderful counselor, mighty God, so on and so forth. Matthew takes all those names and identity and he wraps it up into one person and says, it's this Jesus Christ of Nazareth that was born and died and raised and ascended to the right hand of the father. We also see in verse 6, and we kind of passed over this, but I want to go back to it now, that the government will be on his shoulder. What does that mean? It means that this promised king, Jesus, will bear the entire burden of world government on his shoulders. He will carry the ruling of this world completely all authority will be his. And because he will wield all authority perfectly, the entire creation will benefit from the justice and mercy of the King." You see, in Jesus's first coming, the government being on his shoulder took the form of a cross. Jesus bore the whole weight of the Roman government who threw a wooden cross on his shoulders and said, carry it to be crucified. And he carried that cross and he was crucified and all the oppression of the world government was upon his shoulders. But in Jesus' second coming, what we wait for, what the Bible calls our blessed hope, in the second coming, it will take the form of complete authority. There's no more cross for Jesus. There's no more defeat for Jesus. When he returns, he will sit on a royal throne in royal robes and he will rule the world with perfect justice, love, and peace. This is our blessed hope. So here's what it boils down to for you and me. I wanna ask you this question and I want you to really consider it honestly. What is it that you hope in? You look at how you talk and how you think and how you view the world. And you look at the things in life that cause you to feel like things are going up and down for you. What are those things that you're hoping in to give you hope, to give you peace, shalom? I wanna tell you that the more that we know and trust Jesus's character, the more joyful confidence we will have in the future he is ushering in. When you see the world going the way that it's going, don't go to the news. Read about the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Don't let pundits tell you about the future of this world or even the present. Don't let them be the commentators for your mind and your life. Who are you hoping in? The next political leader, a political party, a local celebrity, your job? No, we look and trust Jesus's character. I hear a lot of talk in Christian circles, sometimes coming out of my own mouth in a, on a hard day about uh, the world going to hell in a handbasket. And even if you never say that, sometimes you think it. I know you do. And legitimately so, like how could we look at what's going on in the world around us and be like, everything's fine. It's not fine. While there's plenty happening in this world to make us legitimately feel that way, that the, hell, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, I do firmly believe though that landing there is completely incompatible with the teaching of scripture. This kind of hopeless thinking is an incredibly passive, weak and short-sighted view of God and history. Certainly there is deep wickedness and horror in this world. And if I'm reading the scriptures rightly, it will get worse before it gets solved. Okay, that's reality. But we must never forget it is God who reigns over all things everywhere. It is his divine holiness and love that is ultimately sculpting the course of history. It is his character, his righteous wisdom and justice, his love and mercy that will determine the future. Not those who foolishly stumble in the dark and those who oppose him. They don't have enough power to make this thing end up where they want it to go. The direction of the future is ultimately being shaped by an all powerful king who is both just and loving. And the final outcome of this world will be a complete reflection of his wise, mighty, eternal, fatherly, peacemaking character. So why do we hope? Why do we have hope when we look around the world and see the way the world is? We have hope because the future of our world will be shaped by the character of our king. It's being shaped by a lot of different things right now, many of them evil, but that's not where it ends. Don't be so short-sighted that all you can see what is happening now or what might happen in the near future. Be long-sighted and see the character of Jesus as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and know that because of his character, it can't end any other way than him ruling out of that character and this world being completely rehabilitated into his image and the way he wants it to be. Some people would say, but have you seen the condition of our world? And to that, I just wanna answer with all love and grace, yes, but have you seen the character of my King? I need to remind myself of this. When I feel like things aren't going well, when I feel like the world is heading down the tubes, yes, but Jesus's character means he can't lose. Jesus's mightiness and his grace and his wisdom means he will rule forever and it won't always be like this. I think one of the mistakes we make about Christmas is not overemphasizing its importance, but rather underemphasizing its trajectory. We can focus so much on Jesus being born and the cuteness of baby Jesus, seven pound, eight ounce baby Jesus in a cradle or manger, and that's good. It's in the Bible, let's focus on it. But why? Why was he put there? Why did he come to earth? Because he was born to be king of all don't stop at the manger look at the trajectory of jesus being born he's born king of kings and that is the final trajectory of his reign the birth of jesus set the world on a course to an unimaginably glorious future are we gonna have to go through a lot of garbage have we gone through a lot of garbage between now and then yeah yeah yes of course It's not the end. The night doesn't last forever. There's always the dawn that Jesus will bring. So our hope is anchored in the absolute assurance that God's unchanging nature will bring about God's invincible will. God doesn't change. Jesus is who he says he is. He's who Isaiah said he is. He's wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. He's everlasting father. He's prince of peace and he's invincible. So why would we fear? Why would we look at our world with hopelessness? Why would Christians who follow the King, who will reign forever, why would we lose hope and have a weak, whiny view of this world? In spite of all that you see, the reality of Jesus and his reign is greater, amen? we want to celebrate communion. Now I'd ask the band to come on up. First Corinthians eleven, twenty-three 23 through 28 says this. This is Paul writing. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're not just eating, we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming. Jesus's death for all mankind until he returns. And it, it also gives us this hope that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're thinking about the return of the Prince of Peace. He is coming again. And so every Sunday that we come together, part of our practice, I mean, this is an ancient practice. 2,000 years, people who love Jesus have been eating this meal together. And, and to this day, to this minute, We are carrying on this practice of not forgetting that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he has promised to do. He's returning. The Prince of Peace will not stay away forever. He will come and he will make all things right. And so when we eat this and we drink this, we remember that in an active way. I remember what you've done, Jesus, but I'm gonna give my life to the mission you've given us as well and proclaim Jesus' death in this world until he returns. And so let's take a moment to remember him. Remembering that the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed, Isaiah 53. Let's take a moment, let's examine ourselves. First Corinthians also says we should confess our sin and ask our savior to heal any wicked way in us that we should examine ourselves and not eat this meal in an unworthy manner. This is a holy, moment. Let's not be cavalier about it. This is about the body and the blood of King Jesus. And so we confess our sin and we ask God to heal our wickedness. And then we remember that it is his character and his work that brings us peace with God, the Father, not our own. So take some moments right now, examine your heart, confess sin. If there's anyone that you are at odds with, who is a brother or sister in Christ, leave this here and go. And talk to them and be made well. Go and, and restore that relationship to the best of your ability. And then let's remember that it is Jesus who saves. Take a moment, just as you reflect on this, examine your heart and come to a place of deep gratitude. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, let's eat in remembrance of Christ our King. And Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Just remember Jesus' blood spilt for us.